the Navy divers went down 120 feet below and brought up over a million pieces of that aircraft. And those pieces were taken then from the crash site out to a hangar, and they reconstructed the plane. It, it, it took them months. And I think that it showed that the centrifuge tank blew up. They couldn't find any evidence of a bomb or a missile on any of the pieces. And that's when they turned it over pretty much to the NTSB. Welcome to the Crane's Corner podcast, sponsored by Mark Kleiderline and Corey Kelly from Principal Financial Group. On a warm July night 25 years ago, TWA Flight 800, a 747 carrying 230 passengers and crew members, bound for Paris and Rome, exploded in flames off the coast of Long Island. At the time, I lived a few miles from the crash site and for several weeks covered the crash news for CBS News. Also covering the crash much more extensively was Pat Milton, then with the Associated Press, now a veteran producer with CBS News. Pat went on to write a book about the investigation, and I am delighted to have her here as my guest. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. So take me back on that uh, that terrible night when the plane went down. You were living on Long Island, I suppose? Yes, I was the bureau chief on Long Island for the Associated Press, and I got a call from my office after 9, 9 p.m., and uh, they told me that a plane had gone down on Long Island. And I said to them, well, call the FAA. It must be a commuter flight uh, going out to the Hampton. And they said, no, Pat, it's a 747. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, and I began uh, rolling. Packed a quick uh, go bag, threw on a pair of jeans and a sweatshirt, and went out to the crash site, which was right off of Fire Island on Long Island and commandeered a fisherman who was coming in with the day's catch and asked him to take me out to the crash site. He didn't even know there had been a crash. And I went out to the crash site and stayed there most of the night reporting on my cell phone to the Associated Press where I was working at the time, and they were feeding it out throughout the world. I remembered that night very vividly. I had to keep my sweatshirt over my nose and mouth because the water was on fire and the smell of the fumes was just poisoning. And I just remember, too, the sight of of the bodies that were floating and backpacks and sneakers and luggage. It was just horrific, just absolutely horrific. Well, I was told to go down to Kennedy Airport where the flight had originated. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, then the mayor of New York, had a news conference with some TWA officials. And when that was done, I went home and presumably he was going to catch up on my sleep. And about an hour later, my beeper went off and they asked me to go do what Pat had done. I commandeered a boat, went out in that that area before between East Mariches Bay, I guess, and, and the Atlantic. And I did see similar things like Pat saw, the book bags and debris. I didn't see any currency, didn't see any bodies, and I was glad for that. But amazingly, Pat, all of the bodies would be recalled over time. Well, they got remains of every one of the 230 souls that were on board. Another vivid memory was that while I was on the water that night on the boat, the Coast Guard just descended on the area, and there were young men, not even old enough to buy a beer in a bar, that were hauling in bodies and treating them with such dignity of cradling them and, and covering them up with blankets. And, and some of them were even blessing them. 
it was just incredibly beautiful and heart-wrenching sight to see. Not to get too too deep into the, the grim details of what happened, but I do recall that the Long Island Suffolk County Medical Examiner concluded that most, not all, but most of the people were killed pretty much instantly when that blew apart in the air. They had whiplash-type injuries, and they were dead before they hit the ground. They told us that, too. Authorities said that it was uh, probably instant for most of the people because, you see, the plane, uh, when it blew up, the cone, the front of the plane, dropped off. And so the, the whole uh, cabin of the plane was exposed, and it pitched up. And, uh, again, not to get the graphic uh, either, um, that most of the people's uh, skin was just ripped off. It was a tough night for many people, including those who, it was a Tuesday, I believe, right in the summertime, just about any night is a party night. And there were people who were outside in their, in their backyards or their back decks, and they saw something spectacular. What it was, they couldn't say for certain. Did something come up at the plane, or did the plane explode? Some optical illusions, Pat. Well, there were hundreds of people, as you say, uh, along the coastline of Long Island, you know, water skiing, having barbecues, of picnics on the beach. And they reported to investigators that they saw something going from the ground to the sky. They thought at first maybe it was a rocket, like a firecracker rocket. And they were very explicit in, in their detail, saying that they saw this streak of light heading towards the plane just prior to the plane blowing up. And that was one of the elements that got investigators strict attention that this could have been a terrorist act. You really had three jurisdictions. You had the FBI, which was looking for a terrorist act, a crime. You had the NTSB, which was just looking to find out what kind of accident it was. And can we put it all together and figure out what happened so it doesn't happen again? And then you had the Coast Guard. And I don't, I don't know that the Coast Guard was pushing much weight around, but certainly the FBI and the NTSB got into it a few times. Yes, it was the FBI and the NTSB and, of course, the Navy, which did an extraordinary contribution to this crash investigation. But uh, yes, the the FBI, you know, does not investigate accidents. They're there to investigate crime. And they wanted to look very closely and very thoroughly at whether this was a bomb or a missile that took down the plane. You know, they had the eyewitnesses accounts that uh, many of them said that they saw a fire or a flare, firecracker or a flare going up towards the plane. There was also a time when the U.S. Olympics was beginning uh, in Georgia and Atlanta. And they also, Ramsey Youssef, who was the terrorist mastermind of the first bombing of the Trade Center in 1993, he was just about to go on trial in Manhattan federal court. So there was a lot of ingredients that were uh, playing into all of this. You know, 747s just don't fall out of the sky. They, they're considered the workhorse of the air fleet. And they knew that if the plane took off and several minutes into flight just suddenly blew up in the sky into a, a vivid fireball, there was no mayday from the crew. There was no warning that anything was wrong. It had just taken off from Kennedy Airport on the way to Paris. So I think the suddenness of it, the strength of the 747, all played into the FBI thinking that this was a bomb or this was a missile. Even the National Transportation Safety Board, they had a go team that went immediately to the crash site. And some of them came up from Washington, D.C. 
And they brought maybe, you know, a change of underwear and, and, and a shirt for one or two days because they, too, were convinced that this was a crime. And it wasn't until they started getting into it that they saw they had a big investigation ahead of them. Now, Pat, one of the theories that, that came out early is that maybe Stinger missiles handheld, fired from the water, could have brought down the plane. And as I recall, 13,000 feet was the ceiling for possible strike. And where was the plane when it went down? That's exactly right. It was the outside envelope where a man pad could be launched from a boat right underneath the flight. And they were measuring that, and they said, well, it was not beyond the realm of possibility that it could have hit the plane. They were also, uh, there was maneuvers going on in the area by not only uh, the U.S. Uh, military, but also uh, foreign uh, military. And they thought perhaps, well, maybe uh, there was an accident. Maybe a, a missile was, was shot at, at the plane, or, or again, maybe it was the sabotage. So they examined uh, many, many possibilities that this was a missile. They even reconstructed the plane and, and took string and went from hole to hole, seeing if there was an entrance and an exit hole where a missile would have been shot through the plane. So what we have you know, several days into this, for those of you who may not have remembered what went on, we've got a, a rescue and recovery operation to bring the victims back. And we've got what looks like an ongoing crime investigation. At one point, Pat, didn't they detect what they thought was the fuel from a missile launcher? They detected fuel from a missile launcher, but they also detected PETN traces of, of chemical that were on the seat. And it was very, very alarming. And they thought, well, this was the key piece of evidence that they needed to determine that this was a bomb. But for further investigation uh, into it, they found that um, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, had conducted tests on that particular aircraft with dogs sprinkling various chemicals around so that the dogs uh, could hit on it. And they had a training mission maybe about two or three weeks before this uh, flight took off. With respect to the crew, the first, the captain is Captain Kravorkian. He had had literally two years of flying. If you put every day together, he, he had had something like 18,000 hours. And the, the next junior aviator had thousands of hours as well. There was also a veteran Czech pilot on board. So the crew is about as good as you could get. They had an excellent crew on board. And again, they were doing background trek trips. About, they had an excellent crew on board, and they were doing background checks of every single passenger and every single crew member as to, you know, maybe there was an insurance fraud. Maybe there was some kind of domestic dispute. Maybe there was some kind of argument for employees. They looked at every single thing in the background, and they couldn't come up with, uh, with anything. As a matter of fact, the plane was delayed taking off because they couldn't match an article of baggage with the passenger right away, but they finally did. That's one of the reasons it was supposed to go off, I believe, around seven and went off at, after eight, right? Yes, and that was the fact that the plane was delayed, played in down the road into the crucial piece of evidence. You know, they knew early on when they started diving down, the Navy divers and the FBI divers started bringing up debris from the bottom of the ocean, 120 feet below. They brought up the center fuel tank, and it was all charred and twisted. So they knew right away that something had happened with the center fuel tank, and they just couldn't determine what it was. Was it a bomb? Was it a missile? Or was it a mechanical failure that uh, caused the center fuel tank to explode and cause the crash? 
and it was several months down the road before they could determine. But one of the NTSB, what they one of the elements they did determine is that the plane was delayed on the tarmac for a considerable amount of time, and it was a hot summer night. And as it uh, sat on the tarmac, there were air conditioning units underneath the center fuel tank at the time. And because the plane was going from west to east, it didn't need to have a full tank in the center fuel tank. All it needed to get to Paris from New York was the two wing tanks. And so the center fuel tank was basically empty. Maybe there was like an inch of fuel in it. So when those air conditioning units were sitting underneath the center fuel tank, and running constantly to keep people in the passenger cabin cool, it was also at the same time cooking the vapors inside the center fuel tank and making them viable for for an explosion. So what they determined down the road, the NTSB investigators determined, was that the plane, when it took off, the vapors were, were ripe hot, and some electricity sparked from a, they believe, possible frayed wiring sparked that center fuel tank and caused it to explode like a bomb. Pat, this is something of a perfect storm when you think that these 747s began flying around 1970-71, so they've been flying for 25 years at this point. There certainly have been the conditions, hot nights and delays that it would be ripe for what happened here, but it had never happened before. Well, they, they believe that it was frayed wiring because elsewhere in the plane, they found wiring that had been uh, stripped, and they believe that that's how that's how the center fuel tank blew up. Just prior to uh, the explosion, when they recovered the black boxes from the bottom of the ocean and they replayed them, they heard the pilot say, "Look at that fuel indicator!" And it had jumped in the cockpit, the fuel indicator, and that would gave them a bit of a evidence that that something in the fuel tank exploded. You know, there's four fuel rods that they have inside the center fuel tank, much the same as you have in a car that measures how much gas you have or how much fuel you have. And they believe that one of the wiring from those indicators, measuring indicators, was what sparked and what what caused the explosion. So Captain Kevorkian, or, or maybe the first officer, noticed these anomalies while flying, not not on the uh, on the tarmac. So there's not much he could have done. No, it, it was just seconds prior to the explosion. Wow. There was a, I don't know who his name was. I noticed watching one of these Smithsonian reenactments. He was dead set on putting the plane back together. I guess he gets the credit for coming up with the cause. Well, I think who gets the credit, you know, I was at the crash site living in a hotel for 11 months Mm. following this investigation for the Associated Press. And it was very clear to me that there was a very big debate, a heated debate, an argument that went on whether there should be a reconstruction of of the plane. The FBI were pushing for it because they felt that they had not determined whether it was a bomb or a missile, and they felt that they had to definitively decide that through a reconstruction of the plane. The NTSB were very much against it. They wanted to get out of there. They thought that this was an accident. Let's move on. And uh, the FBI had to go to the White House at the time and uh, seek uh, funding to order to do the reconstruction. And as it turned out, you know, the NTSB and the FBI and engineers from all over the country reconstructed the plane in an unprecedented experience. 
Now, did you stay on the story for four years? I stayed on the story for four years. Yes. Um, so you are the you are, and I, I mean this very reverently. You are the dean of reporters on the story. Um, we were all sent to it. Some left early, some left a little later. But Pat, you are the definitive storyteller here. And let's let's pick it up there. I think some of the parents, the relatives, a lot of people just didn't like what they heard regarding this conclusion. Well, there's been you know many theories that are out there that still linger that this uh, was a bomb or this was a missile. And I think that many of the families had said to me that what was just not very fulfilling, not very satisfying, is that the NTSB could not come up with the exact cause. They couldn't pinpoint exactly where the explosion, what caused the explosion. All they came up with was a probable cause. And the probable cause was that it was frayed wiring that somehow sparked the ripe centrifuge tank. When you refer to frayed wiring, do you think that was accidental or could it have been intentional? No, because they found throughout the airplane that, that there was frayed wiring. Was just an old and plane. that's what yeah. made them determine in that particular area that that must have been that must have been what caused it. But no, they they found stripped wiring, frayed wiring throughout the aircraft. And the other thing I heard was that isn't jet fuel a little tougher to ignite than regular fuel? I'm not I'm not too sure about that. Ed. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're chatting with Pat Milton, the dean of reporting on this story, the loss of flight 800. Still a lot more to cover, a lot of angles. But we will leave you, as we always do, with a trivia question, and it is, TWA suffered its first plane crash in 1931. It killed nine people, including a well-known sports figure. Can you name him? We'll be back in a minute. You want to be ready for what comes next in your life. Whether you're close to retirement or just starting out, we can help with a financial strategy that's tailored to fit your needs right now and going forward. We can help you prepare for what's next, getting married, buying a home, Starting a family, saving for college, dealing with divorce, living in retirement. Set realistic financial goals, maximizing retirement contributions, eliminating debt, investing for the future, reviewing investments. Protect what matters most, income, loved ones, assets. Create your legacy, estate planning strategies, charitable giving. Call Mark Kleiderlein and Corey Kelly at 209-857-3971. 209-857-3971. Insurance products issued by Principal National Life Insurance Company, except in New York, Principal Life Insurance Company securities and advisory products offered through Principal Securities Incorporated, 800-247-1737, member SIPC. Principal National, Principal Life, and Principal Securities, Inc. are members of the Principal Financial Group, Des Moines, Iowa, 50392. Mark Kleiderline and Corey Kelly, Principal National and Principal Life Financial Representatives, Principal Securities Registered Representatives, Financial Advisors. Crane's Corner is not affiliated with any company of Principal Financial Group. And we're back. We left you with a trivia question. TWA, the airline involved in Flight 800, had its first plane crash in 1931 in Kansas. It killed, among others, a well-known sports figure. You want to take a crack at it, Pat Milton? You got me. <laughs> well, it was Newt Rockne of Notre Dame. Wow. Flying in the early days really was, it was, it was not for the faint of heart. So we're chatting with Pat Milton. He's She is a great reporter. She went on to CBS. I think you, you, you built your way into CBS because you're great reporting on TWA, Pat, right? Oh, I'm not too sure about that, but I was very fortunate that CBS came calling and, and offered me a job. And 
and I've been with them now for 12 years. Good. Working on 60 Minutes and other projects? Yes. So let's get back to The Hangar. It's massive 747 has been reconstructed amazingly, painstakingly from Mauritius Bay and, and the Atlantic Ocean. What an undertaking that must have been. And what did they learn from that, Pat? Well, it was a, a tremendous undertaking. The Navy divers uh, went down 120 feet below and brought up over a million pieces of that aircraft. And those pieces were taken then from the crash site out to a hangar. And the hangar was an abandoned hangar that used to be uh, owned by Grumman Aerospace on Long Island. And they reconstructed the plane. It, it, it took them months. And I think that it showed that the centrifuge tank blew up. They couldn't find any evidence of a bomb or a missile on any of the pieces. And that's when they turned it over pretty much to the NTSB. You know, the FBI never led the investigation. They were always on the edge of taking it, taking it over, but they didn't take it over. But they kind of said, okay, we've got to start explaining then what happened to the plane as far as the flares and the eyewitnesses accounts and what did the eyewitnesses see. They turned to the CIA that the CIA then put together an investigation and, and a film as to just the specific question as to what did the people along the shoreline of Long Island see when they said they saw flares and fireworks uh, going up from the ocean in, onto the plane. And the CIA experts uh, said that, you know, sound travels uh, more slowly than light. Again, that's why you see, you know, lightning in an electrical storm, you know, before you, you hear, you know, the thunder clash. And they said that the plane being up that high, what people were seeing was the actual split up of the plane, that it had blown up and the fiery pieces were falling off. And again, we should tell you that there is no chance for the seasoned crew to do anything. They didn't get any indicator except maybe a, a couple of uh, gauges about where the fuel was going, but certainly would not have had the time to set the plane down either on a beach or, or get it back to JFK. No, they didn't. The voices uh, did not seem alarmed when the one pilot said, uh, look at that crazy fuel indicator light, and then it just blew up. Uh, he didn't seem alarmed, like, oh, my goodness, we've got to do something right away. And he didn't say that into the thing. It just, it, He just made it sounded like just an offhanded remark of what was going on in the, on the dials on the, co- in the cockpit. So uh, we, we come up with this description or this theory that it was an explosion caused by frayed wiring in the center fuel tank. How long does it take for the FBI, the NTSB, the Navy to all get on board with this theory? Well, I think that, you know, it took a good year before the FBI showed up at a news conference. It was Jim Calstrom who was heading the FBI in New York at the time and headed this extraordinary investigation with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of agents. He finally stood up at a news conference and said that there's highly, 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 and he said, I'll add another highly probability that this was an accident and was not brought down by a missile or a plane. He said, we have found absolutely zero evidence that this was brought down by a bomb or a missile. Now, wasn't there a, a test flight or uh, they tried to recreate what happened on board? And they took it up in the air and I guess they could notice a degree, degree of uh, heating in that, in that fuel in the center tank. And, the, and they figured that this is the kind of thing we're going towards that explosion. And then they came back down. 
Well, I know they did everything. I know for sure that they blew up a 747 in the desert in Arizona to see what it would look like if a bomb had blown up inside the plane. And then they took those pieces, you know, because bombs leave signature signs on metal. It's uh, riveted or it's flowered. And so, you know, bomb experts know what it looks like when there's a bomb. And they couldn't see any kind of evidence of a bomb in any of those pieces. You know, FBI was very mindful of Pan Am 103 in Scotland Lockerbie that had a bomb on board. And it came down to just a tiny little computer chip the size of a dime that was found by investigators that had them determine that their crash, the Pan Am 103, was not an accident, but was a deliberate uh, act. It was a deliberate deliberate uh, terrorist act. And so the FBI was very mindful of that. And that's why Jim Calstrom uh, and the other FBI investigators kept saying, we need more pieces off the bottom of the ocean. We need more pieces off the bottom of the ocean. We're looking for the Eureka piece. We're looking for the piece that's going to tell us, ha, this was a bomb or this was a missile. And they never found it. They had Navy and FBI on ships actually taking sifters, sand sifters, and taking scooping up sand and going through the sand sifters to see if there was anything that they could come up with, some even minute little piece of evidence that they could come up with with this was a bomb. They were, they were driven to determine if this was a, a criminal act or a terrorist act. You know, the FBI, again, pushed the NTSB to hire trawlers and clansmen and baymen to go in and, and go through the waters with, with nets to try to see if there's any pieces that they might have overlooked. They actually vacuumed the bottom of the ocean, the sand below, to determine if there was any kind of pieces that they could suck up. And then they could look through these sand sifters to see if there was any kind of pieces that they may have overlooked. And nothing was found. There was no evidence that this was a bomb or a missile. And to give an idea of just how extensive this work was, Pat, how big was the debris field on the ocean floor? Oh, I, it stretched, you know, for, for miles. They had three debris fields, debris that was closest to Kennedy Airport, a middle debris field, and then a further debris field of the pieces that fell off the last part. And, you know, they, they immediately looked at the first debris field closest to Kennedy because that would give them more information, that would give them more uh, evidence of what happened here because they'd be the first pieces off the plane. So if it was a bomb or it was a missile, those pieces would, would be, you know, jettisoned off the plane uh, at, at first. And then there was the rumor for a while that it could have been friendly fire because we did have some ships in the region. We had a couple of subs, as I remember, and then there was a freighter or some sort of a Navy vessel off the coast of New Jersey that could have been in range for an attack. Well, they had a Navy ship, and FBI uh, went down to Norfolk and went to the, Navy, to the Navy ship that was in the area, and that Navy ship uh, had a silo with missiles in the silos, and FBI had a... Um, all of the uh, numbers of the of the missiles, and they went down into the silo and compared each number to see if those missiles, those particular missiles, were were changed or were they the same missiles that had been on there, you know, for a couple of weeks. And all of the numbers matched up. You know, the other thing is too, as it was explained to me when I was on the Navy ship by the captain, 
is that when you're shooting a missile off of the Navy, you know, they've got to get codes off of land. They've got to call superiors off of land. You don't just shoot a missile. And it's not like a sailor, you know, is on board deck and slips on the, the water and, and hits a button and goes, whoops, and the, and the missile goes off. And again, if it was a missile, everyone on board that ship would hear it. It's like a freight train going through and everyone would be alerted. And somebody, some sailor would call his girlfriend or his mother and say, hey, mom, you wouldn't believe what we did last night. (laughs) We shot down that plane. You know, how do you keep, you know, two or three hundred sailors on board a ship quiet and not letting them tell what happened to TWA Flight 800? So it just seemed inconceivable that that it was the Navy ship. I totally agree with that. Was there any claim of responsibility from an Al-Qaeda or any other outside force at any time? No, and bingo, that's a very key thing to bring up because there was no claim of responsibility. They listened. They had the NSA and the CIA listening in to see if there was any kind of chatter, if there was any kind of words that were coming from the terrorists. That Were they celebrating? Were they happy? They were even baffled. They, they had chatter even from the terrorists, from the al-Qaeda people. Whoa, just see what happened, that type of thing. So that was another key ingredient as to why this was not a terrorist act. Well, Pat, let me ask you this. You covered it from evening one and for four years. At what point did you come to the conclusion that, yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe it was the center fuel tank explosion caused by a small amount of fuel and frayed wires. I think after all of the NTSB hearings, the NTSB had a series of hearings after the FBI stood up and declared that this was not a crime. And I think after that, you know, you, you just, you always do have lingering doubts. You know, you're, there's anomalies that, that haunt you. Why this? Why that? But I think in any investigation, in any crime, there's anomalies. And I think that that's what existed here. What kind of repair works or, or modifications were made to these jumbo jets after this conclusion was found? Well, I think they moved the the air conditioning units, but, you know, 747s are not being made now. So, No, they're probably parked in the desert if they're going at all. They are, they are used in some foreign airlines. And I think that's one of the things that I was troubled with when this first conclusion came out, that these 747s at that point have been going for 25 years, being used by flag carriers that maybe don't have the maintenance skills or don't employ them to the degree that American Airlines would or TWA would. And, and that happens here, not there. It's just one of those things. It had to be a perfect storm of, of severed wires and fuel and almost empty tank, I guess. It was just tragic. And it was just tragic, the fate of the people on board. You know, some people were on board that were not supposed to be on board. They had their plans changed at the last minute. And, you know, it just it, it was just a tragedy. They had students from Montoursville, Pennsylvania, who had had cake sales and and car washes to get money for their class to go to Paris. For many of them, it was the first time they were even going to go overseas. And it was just tragic. There was like like 16 students on board that and their teachers that lost their lives. And and visiting Montoursville a couple of years later, and I went to the cemetery there, and it was just startling and, and so heartbreaking to look at the tombstones and every single tombstone of these students had the same death 
of July 17th, 1996. So it was it was a, a real tragedy. And Flight 800 was also going on to Rome once it had landed in Paris, and there were a number of people who had transferred onto this flight because the Rome flight they originally on was canceled. So fate is the hunter, as they say. There was even a man that was on going on a business trip, and he missed the flight, and he was screaming and cursing at the ground people at Kennedy Airport or TWA, let me on that flight. And they said, sir, it already pulled back from the gate. I've got to get on that flight. I have an important meeting in Paris in the morning. And they said, sir, we're sorry. And he goes, well, I'll take your name. I'll have your job. <laughs> and he walked away, but I'm sure the next morning he was happy he wasn't on that flight. He was giving him promotions. <laughs> Boy, it was it was quite an ordeal. Uh, covering it a little bit and covering it so extensively as you have done, Pat, and done so wonderfully. It's just hard to believe it's 25 years. It really is. And your book is called uh, In the Blink of an Eye. It's in print. It is a little tricky to find. You can get the audio version on Amazon, and it's worth a read. Pat Milton. Well, it's published by Random House, and Random House has put it on their perpetual list because of the demand for it. So it's not going to be going out of print. I don't think I mentioned it's going out of print. It never was out of print. It's just hard to find after 25 years. But the audio book is available on Amazon, and perhaps because of the, the timing, they'll bring your other book back. But I have some friends at the Santa Clara Library who brought me a copy. <laughs> so we had to reach out. Pat, thank you so much for your knowledge and for sharing it with us. TWA Flight 800 gone in the blink of an eye, as Pat put it. 25 years ago. Thanks for listening to the Crane's Corner podcast. If you liked our full-length story, you'll love Crane's Corner news and comment, so be sure to subscribe, like, and give us a positive review. And thanks again for listening to Crane's Corner. I'm Ed Crane. Crane's Corner is produced by Multipoint Content Strategies and Hear Me Now Studio executive producer Jeff Holden. To learn more about what we do or how to support our content, visit edcranescorner.com. 